God wants us to be honest with Him when we worship. He wants us to be real with Him. This is the second message in the series, Up and Down. This message is entitled, Real Worship. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Well, tonight we continue our series that we started last weekend together called Up and Down. I'm talking to you about the power, the blessings of worship. And I want to talk to you tonight about what it means to really worship. What is real worship? There's a lot of different ideas that people have about worship, what it is, what it needs to look like, what it needs to feel like, et cetera, that if I don't, I don't really worship unless I feel certain things. I want to kind of get past some of those myths and ideas tonight and get down to the core of what real worship is all about. And when I use the word real, I'm really using the word real to describe something that, that isn't phony because I, I'm completely convinced that God wants you to get real with him. Amen. God's not interested in a phony relationship with you. God's not a phony God. He wants a real interactive relationship with you. And so if we're going to have a real relationship with God, we have to learn something about real worship. So the question tonight is, what is real worship? Well, here's the good news. Jesus answered the question for us. In John chapter 4, Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman who was caught up with the whole idea of who was to worship where and what mountain needed to be worshipped on and all kinds of thoughts that she had about worship. And Jesus came right down to the core of what worship was all about. And he says to this lady and to us as well, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when what kind of worshipers? True, or we could say real, that which is real, that which is true. Worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. Say that phrase with me, in spirit and in truth. The Father, I love this part, the Father is, what's he doing? He's looking for those who will worship him that way. Let's just stop for a moment and let that settle in. Just let it settle into your mind for a moment. They told us exactly what real true worship is. It's worship that happens in spirit and in truth. We're going to understand this, this more in just a bit. What does that mean? And I love, as I said a moment ago, this aspect, the Father, God the Father is looking, and the pictures, he's over the portals of heaven, looking down on earth to try to find someone who is worshiping him that way. That is, you draw attention from the Father God when you become a worshiper, for God is, what is God? He is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What did Jesus mean? When he says that if we're going to truly worship, if we're going to really worship God, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? That's the question again, as I said tonight. So I'm going to give you five things. We'll work through these five things together that will help us to understand this idea of in spirit and in truth. The first thing to understand is that true worship involves your heart in spirit and in truth. We have a natural tendency as human beings, and the natural tendency is to turn lots of things into rituals or formulas or simply habits. Sadly, there are a lot of people that will go to church this weekend, and they will go to church not to have a relationship or an interaction with God because it's just the habit. It's the ritual. They go through the ritual, and they go through the habit, and they do what they do every weekend, and, 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 and that's wonderful. It's great to have a good habit, but that alone is not enough. Most people live, we kind of 
move our lives toward habits, habit patterns, and it loses meaning. It becomes just a ritual of what we do and truly is in the realm of worship oftentimes. And one of the dangers of worship is that we can allow it to become this rote, ritualistic kind of formula that takes us out of this true interaction with God. And when you think about Jesus' ministry on earth, Oftentimes, his harshest ministry, his harshest words were reserved for people who were worshiping God this way. They, they were going through the outward rituals. They were showing up at the synagogue uh, every, every Sabbath day, and they were following all the laws, and they were doing all the right things, if you will, and they were a group of people called the Pharisees. Anybody remember the Pharisees in the New Testament? You know that Jesus' harshest words, these were the people that were supposed to be the most religious people in town, the most religious people in Israel. And again, externally, they were doing all the things that were right. They looked like true worshipers, but they really weren't true worshipers because God didn't have their hearts. It was a formula. It was a ritual. I want you to listen to something Jesus said to a group of these guys one day in Matthew chapter 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. Their worship is a farce. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And Jesus said this again to the people that were going to church, okay? He said this to the people that were showing up at the Sabbath times of worship. And he says, you don't really get what worship is all about. And so, of course, we don't want to be like that. Lest we judge the Pharisees, we can fall into the same patterns as well. We can ritualistically engage in corporate worship. We can ritualistically read our Bibles. We can ritualistically say our prayers. We can ritualistically do all these kinds of things and yet not even really be interacting with God, not even being thinking about God in our interactions or really making it real and personal in our lives. So before we condemn the Pharisees, let's just sort of give them a break tonight. Let's think about us. How about that? Is that okay? So the big issue is to make sure that we're not honoring just with our lips, but honoring God with our, our hearts, with our hearts. Why did God speak of our hearts in terms of worship? Because God wants to connect with you. Let me say that tonight again. Are you hearing me? God wants to connect with you. I wish I could stand in front of each of you tonight, face to face, and just remind you that God wants to connect with you, but not just you externally. God wants to connect with your heart. God loves your heart. God wants an interaction with the heart. I'm going to give you four reasons why. And the first reason that God wants your heart and God is interested in that is because it's the most intimate and personal part of you. When you say that you had a heart-to-heart conversation with someone, what you're saying is the most intimate and personal connection that you could have had with an individual transpired. And your heart is where your most intimate thoughts are and your most intimate desires are. It is really who you are. You live your life from your heart. Take a look at the scripture. It reminds us of this. It is only a person's own spirit with him in him that knows all about him. There you can read the word spirit, a same word, same concept of heart. It's only a person's own heart, own heart within him that knows all about him. And so you're really you, the real you is not what you present externally. The real you is what's going on internally down inside of you. How many of you ever, don't, don't raise your hand on this, but how many of you ever smile when you didn't feel like smiling? Your heart wasn't smiling, but your mouth was, okay? 
We could go through all kinds of situations where externally we may be doing the right things or responding the right, right, right way while something else is going on in our heart. Anybody ever been nice to someone that you were really mad at? Externally, you were forcing yourself to be nice, but inside you said, I hate that person. <laughs> See, you're seeing the difference, okay? Even Jesus said, when he was giving the Beatitudes, he was talking about someone being condemned for committing murder. And he says, I don't want to just talk to you about murder. I want to talk to you about anger in your heart. He goes to the deeper level. And so the first thing to realize is that it's the most. Your heart is the most intimate and personal part of you. The second thing to know about your heart, it reflects your passions and your priorities. How do you know what you really desire in life? You go to your heart. What really turns that thing on inside of you that is passionate, that sets the priorities of your life? Jesus said it like this in Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 12, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure is what's really going on inside of your heart. Here's the third thing that is related to your heart. And we've been talking about this in the last series that I did. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but it's the control center of your life. It's like the command center of your life. Whatever's going on in your heart will direct your life because in your heart continues, it contains your thoughts. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Uh, we, we use this concept of heart for your thoughts. It's also a word that can be used there as well. Guard your thoughts, your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And here's the last thing I want to mention in this section. If God, read it with me, if God has our heart, what does he also have? He has us. When somebody has your heart, they have you, okay? And God says, the reason I want your heart is because I want you, okay? I don't want just something external. I want you. I want a relationship with you. So Jesus says those that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And spirit and truth is not a ritual. It's not just going to God because you have to or you'll feel guilty if you don't. Or you have to fulfill a certain kind of uh, routine in your life. No, God says I want to engage at the heart level with you. Let's go to our second point together. Actually, no, let me read this first first. Then we'll go to the next, next one. Matthew 26, even in Jesus, uh, life and ministry, he had to get to that place where God had, uh, he was committed to God in terms of his heart. He went away. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to face the crucifixion the next day. You've read this or heard this before. So he's in this Garden of Gethsemane. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your what? May your will be done. In that moment, he says, I'm giving you my heart. Whatever you want to do, you can do. I'm going to come back to that in just a, a moment. Now, let's talk about what kind of heart God is looking for. If God wants your heart, do you want to have your heart prepared so God can move in, right? 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 Okay. I, you know I'm talking to you guys, right? You understand? Okay. So what kind of heart do you need? Let's take a look at some characteristics of heart. True worship requires first what kind of a heart? An open heart. When God says, I want your heart, then you have to say, okay, now what I have to do if God's going to have my heart is I have to actually open up my heart to him. The opposite of open is closed, obviously. And I will tell you, as you go through life, you're going to have either a closed heart to God or an open heart to God. 
and we have different phases and seasons of life, but the key is to move toward this open heart relationship with God. And by open heart, I mean this. I'll give you another phrase that you might be familiar with, that God has total access. He has a total access to every part of your life. Nothing should be off limits in your life to God. Now, there's certain things in your life that might be off limits to people because people can abuse and and hurt you in certain kind of ways. So you have to be wise in your relationships with people and you have to set something called boundaries, right? Anybody know what boundary is? I'm not going to let that person trample all over me and I need to set some rules and regulations about how I'm going to live my life. And so boundaries with people, those are very good. Again, with boundaries with people, it's, sometimes it's protective for, for, for the, the kind of things that can happen in your life, but you don't need any boundaries with God. I'll tell you why, because with God, when He has total access and there's no boundaries, you are safe, okay? You can trust your heart with God because God will never hurt you. And by having this open heart with God and total access, it means that you're really honest with God. You're not hiding stuff from Him. Do you remember... In the Garden of Eden, that as soon as Adam and Eve sinned against God, the Bible says that their, their conscience was awakened and they sewed fig leaves together because they realized they were naked and they hid from God. And God comes through the garden saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam was hiding. He was not honest with God. See, what, what a difference would have been if Adam would have just come and said, God, I really blew it. I really messed up. I need to talk to you, God, instead of hiding. And so an open heart means that, that I'm honest with God. I'm not trying to hold anything back. I'm vulnerable before God. I know that I'm safe with Him, that I can share what's going on in my life. There's a trusting sense of my life that I'm welcoming God's God's presence and God's probing in my life. There's a key word there, God's probing, because if He has access to your heart, I promise you this, He's going to probe around in your heart from time to time to check out your health, your heart health, because all of us have a physical heart condition in terms of it's either healthy or unhealthy, but you also have a spiritual heart condition as well that represents certain degrees of health in your life also. And Jesus will will probe around in your life and check you out. And so here's the key. When you go home this weekend for the rest of your life as much as possible, here's what you want to do. What I want to do, what we need to do is we need to hang a big old welcome sign over our heart. Okay? To God. God, you're welcome in my heart anytime. Anytime I mess up, anytime you want to correct me about anything, anytime you want to make adjustments to my life, whatever it is, God, you want to do inside of me, I welcome, I welcome you to my heart. Look at the psalmist and what he says here. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. He understood this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. Would that be a welcome sign? I think it is, isn't it? And lead me along the path of everlasting life. Let's take a look at the next kind of heart that you need. True worshipers require, true worship requires a, read it with me, a humble, childlike heart. If you're going to have worship that is in spirit and in truth, you got to have a heart that is humble and a heart that's like a child, not childish dish, but childlike. There's a difference. Not immature, but, but like a little child relating to the Father. Because worship, 
Here's a key definition for worship. Worship is all about God's children enjoying God's presence and God's love. That's really what worship is. It's about God's children enjoying God's, God the Father's love and presence in your life. It's not a ritual that you perform. It is a relationship that you have. And for this to happen, you have to have these two requirements of your heart. Let's talk about this one first. What is the opposite, opposite of humility? Pride again. Right in the middle of pride. So many of these biblical words, right in the middle of them, you'll find what? Okay, so pride puts I in the center of my life, and anytime that happens, God says, okay, you want to be in the center, I'm not going to fight with you. I'll let you be in the center until you decide that you always wreck the car every time you drive, okay? (laughs) Then as soon as you understand that you wreck the car every time you drive, and you move over to the passenger seat and let me drive, then I'll do that for you, but it's not going to work until you make the decision that you want me in the driver's seat. Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. This is what happens when pride enters your life. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor, shows grace, shows blessing. To what? To the humble. The humble says, God, I don't have anything to bring to you, anything good that I can bring to you. There's not a thing that's good inside of me. And God, I've messed up along the way, and I have some things in my life that I know that you could easily disqualify me by reason of, but Lord, I thank you that by your grace you've accepted me and your family. I come with with, with nothing in my hands to bring other than your grace and mercy in my life. And humility is not just walking around feeling bad about yourself. It's realizing who you are apart from God and depending upon him. And the Bible says if you'll have that kind of an attitude, what will God bring into your life? Favor, grace, blessing that will come. So you need a humble heart, and you'll also need a, what was the other phrase I used? A childlike heart. Take a look at this verse of Scripture. Well, let me read this one again first. This is, it continues with humility. I love this. For this is what the high and, high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, that's humility, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Another passage that really underscores the value of humility in your life. And I encourage you, all of us, let's cultivate humility. It's an attractive quality with God. Now let's talk about childlikeness. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 18, verse 17, truly I tell you, anyone I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Childlikeness and humility are very similar in nature. The childlike person has a trusting spirit. They're not always trying to figure everything out. If you notice about a child, they don't, all they want to know is what you say you're going to do and they trust you. They actually have a confidence in what you say unless you completely invalidate that multiple times, and then they begin to learn. They have to learn not to trust, but with a parent, a child trusts that parent. 
And God says, I want you to come to me with this, this humility, but also with this childlike spirit that you're not trying to figure out everything that's going on in your life and trying to figure out what I'm doing. Just trust me. Have a confidence that I'm for you and not against you, that I'm going to work in your life in some wonderful way. And I want you just to come and just love on me and delight in me and trust that I'm going to do everything I, I, I say that I'm going to do in your life. And God says, that's the kind of heart that I'm looking for. I'm looking for an open heart, that you're not hiding stuff, that you're not trying to push me away or close your life off to me. You have an open book. There's a welcome sign over your heart, and then you're, you're humble. You're living in a spirit of contriteness and humility and confidence in God as well as a child would in trusting a good father. Here's the third or the, you know, third, or the fourth element of this as we're continuing this idea tonight. True worship. What else does it require? A surrendered heart. Boy, this is big, isn't it? A surrendered heart. What does that mean? Hmm. A surrendered heart means that, let's, go, let's kind of track this. I've opened my heart to God. God, my, there's a big old welcome sign here that you have access to my heart. And God, I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm not, I know I have nothing apart from you. I'm trusting in your grace to even have any benefits from you. I don't bring anything of value. You're God and I'm not. So I'm, I've humbled myself. I, I'm going to approach you as a child, Lord. I'm trusting you. I'm not trying to figure everything out. I'm just put, having confidence in whatever promises you have for my life. And then there comes to this point where God begins to do some things in your heart and call you to some action points in your life. You ever had God show up and said, I want you to change this? Come on, help me out, are you? Or I don't like how you're doing that. It's one thing to say you're welcome, but it's another thing to respond when he starts talking to you. Right? Are you with me? Okay. It's one thing to get up on the, on the operating table. It's another thing when the surgeon gets the knife. Right? And so God comes along in your life because he loves you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you just like you are. But as I've often said before, he loves you and me way too much to leave us the way we are. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of cancer inside of us spiritually, right? There's a lot of stuff inside of us that's not healthy and it's not good and broken places inside of us that need to be mended and healed and bones, if you will, that need to be set. And so here we are. We say, oh, God, I'm, I'm, you're welcome. And then God shows up and says, oh, by the way, I want to talk to you about this. And that begins the point of, that can really change everything because you can either say, yes, God, or you can say, no, God. When God begins to deal with things in your life, you have the choice of saying yes or no. And it's always better to say yes. I would highly recommend that saying no to God is not wise, okay? <laughs> highly recommend that, okay? I've tried it, okay? Many of you have tried that before, okay? Saying no to God is not a good thing. It's always better to say yes to God, and that's called surrender. I want to give you an example in the Bible of a man who really missed it. He missed his great destiny because he didn't get this point down. And the man's name is King Saul. And the story is found in the Old Testament. He was the very first king of Israel. And it was a critical time in Israel's history. I'll give you a little bit of background here. Israel was face, facing a group of people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a wicked group of people. They were filled with idolatry, and they were influencing Israel to worship other gods. I mean, it was just an absolutely corrupt 
society. And so God said, I want you just to wipe the Amalekites out. It's time for the, my judgment is upon them. And so through Samuel the prophet, God spoke to King Saul and said, go and destroy everything related to the Amalekites. Here's the instruction, okay? Here it is right here. 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Samuel's words of God to Saul, King Saul. Now go and, what's this next word? Completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. I don't have time to go into the theological elements of this, but there, there was a reason for this, okay? It's not like God is a mean, terrible God up in heaven trying to kill people. No, that's not it at all. There was a significant reason for it, and it had to do with the influence they were having on so many people in a negative way, including his own nation. So here, just kind of hold on, just let that be an understanding of that part of the story. But what did God tell Saul to do? To do what? What words did I just underline there? Completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. So is that pretty clear? Would you say, I, yes, sir, got it, right? I mean, there's not, like, not any ambiguity to that as far as I can tell, right? It's pretty clear. No, it's hard to kind of misunderstand that, right? Completely destroy. Let's see what happens next in the story. Saul, so they go out and have the battle, but Saul and his men spared Agag, that was the king of Am uh, uh, Amalek, spared Agag's life and kept, what did he do? He kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So let's go back again, okay? Saul, Saul here, here's what I want you to do. You know that group of people called the Amalekites? I want you to go out there and completely destroy them. I got a reason for it. Go do it. Clear instructions. Okay. Saul goes out, and instead of doing so, he keeps the king. Doesn't take his life. And everything that's good, as it says here, if it appealed to them, what did they do? So let me ask you the question. From Saul's standpoint with God, was it a yes or a no? Now, let's see what Saul says about this, right? Isn't it interesting how we justify stuff in our life, right? This is kind of funny. It really is. I want you to see what Saul said, okay? Let's take a look now. Here's his explanation. Samuel comes to him and says, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. Duh. Anybody ever said that to God? Yeah, well, I did what you wanted me to do. I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agab, but I destroyed everyone else. Say, hey God, you, you know, I, I, I made some decisions on my own here. I decided that maybe you really didn't mean that, and so I, I decided to make some decisions on my own, and then my troops, my troops, he has nothing. I, did, I had no responsibility for this. My troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice. Notice this. Now he's saying the whole reason I did this, God, is because I wanted to give them to you. Okay. <laughs> to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Are you seeing that this is getting worse? Okay. I mean, he's digging a hole and it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Notice what happens next. Now Samuel comes back and makes a correction to his thinking, but he also gives us a principle as well. Everybody still with me so far? Okay. Let's see what happens next. So 
Saul's last words were, hey, I, I, I just kept everything because I wanted to bring a sacrifice to God. I know what you said, God, but I thought, hey, this would be great to get all these goats and bulls and stuff. I could use them for God's glory. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion, now suddenly he's introduced a new word here, rebellion, because in fact that was what was going on with Saul. Rebellion is as sinful as, a witch, as witchcraft and stubbornness. Oh my goodness, now we've gotten into another word here that requires another whole message, right? And stubbornness as bad as worshiping. What are we talking about this weekend? We're talking about worshiping, right? What you've done, you've actually set up an idol as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, what has he done? He's rejected you as king. What you need to see here is that Saul's issue was an issue of surrender. Let's think with me, because this is not a fancy sermon tonight. This is, I want to help us all grow, okay? This is about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean? Jesus said the Father's looking for people who worship in spirit and truth. I, I'd like to be in that number. How about you? I want to be the one the Father's looking for. So what does that mean? It means that I've got to have an open heart with God. I've got to say, God, there's no, there's no place in my life that I'm trying to hold back from you, whatever you want to work on in me. I've got a big old welcome sign over my heart. I'm giving you total access. And God, I'm going to approach you with a humble heart. I'm trying to get the pride and arrogance out of my life. And I just want to have a childlike spirit that I'm going to trust whatever you do in my life. But then I've got to take the next step that when God begins to deal with stuff in me, right? And he wants to deal with stuff in you too. Amen? Amen. There's stuff in you and me that are things that are broken, things that are cancerous, things that are toxic inside of us, things that are poisonous inside of every one of us. There are areas of our life where we are far away from being like Jesus. Would you agree with that? We all have areas of our life. We're far away from being everything that Jesus wants us to be. And so when he steps in to our world and says, I'm going to start working on those things. I want, to, I want you to respond to me this way. All those other things can be negated if we don't add surrender to it. Amen? And not like Saul and say no, but instead like Jesus. We talked about a moment ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, yes to God, according to your will, may it be done to me. Let's look at our last point together. True worship requires, help me out here, a forgiven and a forgiving heart. Boy, I wish I had time to talk more about this one tonight because if you're going to worship God, you, gotta have to, you have to have both of these. You got a heart that is living in God's forgiveness and a heart that is forgiving. I want you to say two words with me, forgiven and forgiving. Once again, forgiven and forgiving. The root word is the same on both of those, but they have significantly different meanings. You can't worship God without being, what's the first word? Forgiven. God is a holy God, okay? God's not, God's perfect, okay? And so if we're going to worship God, we have to be able to worship Him 
and, and the splendor of his holiness, okay? You can read through the Psalms. The Psalmist talks about the splendor, the beauty, the majesty of God's holiness. But the problem is, because God is holy and we're not, there's a broken relationship with us. And so we have to have something called forgiveness for our sins and to know that we're forgiven to even be able to approach God. And so that's the first step in the process, to know that we've come to God and we've asked him for forgiveness for those things in our life that are contrary to his nature so we can worship God in the splendor of his holiness, having having been forgiven by Jesus Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by Jesus, knowing that now we have his righteousness given to us as a gift. He took our sins and gave us the gift of righteousness. That's being forgiven. But it goes beyond that. You can know all of that in your head, but still be battling with guilt and shame in your heart. There's some of you that perhaps know Yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross, and I know that he forgave me, but why do I still feel guilty about, I've asked God to forgive me of this, and it still comes back up, and I keep thinking about it, and I feel so ashamed of that, and and so the devil begins to work on your life through shame and guilt and condemnation and accusation, and it hinders your worship of God. You can't worship God freely if you don't feel forgiven, if you don't know that you're forgiven. And if I can do anything in this part of tonight's message is to encourage you to know that if you've come to God and you've asked him to forgive you for something and and you've confessed it honestly before him and and you've given it to him, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, I want you to know that one of the benefits of knowing Jesus, I read it just this morning in Psalm 103, the Bible says, forget not his benefits who forgives all all your sins and heals your diseases, okay? And you can't come to, to, to church and throw your hands up freely and worship God if you feel guilty and ashamed and terrible and such a big mistake and a failure in your life. All of that's going to push your hands down and more importantly, push your heart down to where you can't interact with God. And so you need to know that you are forgiven, okay? You are forgiven, you are forgiven, okay? If you've taken those steps, you are forgiven. But here's the key as well. That's not enough because real worship has to add the second word to it, not only forgiven, but what was the second word? Forgiving, okay? Because if God's going to do that for you and give you a clean bill of health and a clean slate and says, I'm going to forgive you, then he also expects us to take the same grace that he's given to us and give it to others. You can't say, oh, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. I sure appreciate it, but I sure hate that person. I hope you tear him to pieces, God. Go get him. That's how we live. I mean, it sounds funny, but really we live that way, don't we? We get this bitterness inside of us, this anger and this justice inside of us. This person deserves that. Would you stop and think for a moment what you deserve, what I deserve? Just think for a moment. What, you, what, do you really, what, what does God deserve to do to you? If you're really honest, what does God deserve to do to you? Same as he deserves to do for, for me. To send me to hell with damnation for the rest of eternity. Because I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. Okay? The sinners saved by grace. And so, as a sinner saved by grace, I have a responsibility freely I have received 
freely I better give, right? Freely I've received, freely I need to, to, to give. I need to forgive others. You can't effectively worship God if you're feeling ashamed and unforgiven, but you can't effectively worship God if you're unforgiving towards someone else. It just doesn't work. Let's take a look at some scriptures as we're about to wrap up here tonight. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our sins. We, we all love that part of the Lord's Prayer, don't we? We love that part, and forgive us our sins, but then he, he adds this, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. That's where it gets a little tougher, doesn't it? Okay, To take what we've received and to give it to others. Look at this passage of Scripture. This is how I want you to conduct yourselves and yourself in these matters. These are the words of Jesus. Message paraphrase. If you enter your place of worship, your place of, what are we talking about? Worship. And about to make an offering... You suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to the friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Isn't that amazing? Should we read that again? A couple of you said yes. I'm not sure about the rest of you. Okay. <laughs> this is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. Jesus said that. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter a place of worship, let's just talk about church. Can we, is that a place of worship, right? We all agree church is a place of worship, right? And about to make an offering. You're just this offering time. Now we've been doing offering a little bit different, but maybe you just get ready to go to the website and click on the give button. You're, getting ready. You're right there. You're ready to hit the give button and give something to God. Give something to church. Give something to the work of his kingdom. And you're about to make an offering. And you suddenly remember not just a grudge you have against somebody else, but even a grudge that somebody else has against you. And you're aware of it. There's a problem in the relationship. And you know there's a problem in the relationship. Remember a grudge a friend has against you. Notice it says abandon your offering. It says click the give button first. Some of you didn't get that, okay? <laughs> I'll come back to that one later, okay? <laughs> Abandon your offering, leave immediately, and go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and worship thing, work things out with God. Now, if we really believe that about this time of the service, about three-quarters of us would be getting up, right? If we really believe that, we'd be getting up and heading to the door. and I'd be wondering, what's going on? But what would be going on would be the thing Jesus said to make happen. You can't worship well when there's a broken human relationship. Let me say so. You can't fix every relationship in life. You can try to be friends with some people. They're not going to be friends with you. You can try to be nice to them. They're not going to, you can love on them all day long. They're not going to love you back. That's okay. You do your part. Okay. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Do your part. Everybody say, do my part. Say it with me. And your part is to do everything you can to have the best relationships possible in your life. I didn't say that. Who said it? And Jesus said, how you relate to other people affects the quality of your worship. So let's just conclude tonight. I hope this has helped somebody, okay? Real worship. What is real worship? I want to really be a worshiper. 
What does it mean to be a real worshiper? It's not just about coming in and clapping our hands and raising our hands and singing songs. That's all good and that's wonderful. It's nothing wrong with that. But everything's wrong with it if your heart's not where it needs to be. Everything's wrong with it. If your heart's closed, you shut your heart down, you closed off your heart. Or do you have a heart that has a big old welcome sign hanging out and say, Jesus, you're always welcome here. Whatever, search me, oh God. And if you approach God and say, you know what, I'm not a, it's not about me. I, I, I don't deserve anything but judgment from you. But thank you for your grace, God. And I just want to walk in humility. And Lord, I want to be like a child just to trust you. Whatever you say is true and real and believing. I don't have to figure everything out. And God, I want to, whenever you're dealing with me, I, I don't want to push back. I don't want to say no and leave me alone. I'll partially do what you want me to do. I want to be surrendered. And God, I want to walk in the freedom of knowing I'm forgiven by God. I don't deserve it, but God has forgiven me freely and I can raise my hands to God because these are not hands I've made holy. These are hands Jesus has made holy, okay? And my hands can be extended because it's coming from a clean heart that God has cleansed. But at the same time, I'm going to run to the people around me that I might have an offense against or they may have an offense against me. I'm going to do everything I can to be a true worshiper, to mend every fence I can, to not only be forgiven, but to be forgiving. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, thank you for your word this evening. Lord, we want to learn how to be true worshipers. We don't want to just be fake or phony. We don't want to put on an outward display of worship. We want it to come from our heart. And so many times, Lord, the things of our heart really do get in the way. And we're asking for your forgiveness and your help to, to grow into those people who worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Lord, take something that's been said tonight in all of our lives, Lord, mine included, all of us here, Lord, I pray that you'll just apply some of what we've heard tonight down into the core of our being and let us let it work its way into our heart and life to, to live for you at a deeper level to become a deeper and stronger worshiper of you. For that we thank you in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new, and that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. 
And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.